song, the message in it. All right, take your Bibles, if you will, and find the book of 1 John. Near the back of your Bible, the book of 1 John. Find that place, if you will, chapter number 5. Again, we have a lot of folks who are not here today. Uh, the Rivera family is uh, doing much better, but they didn't feel like they were able to come to church. And uh, so keep them in prayer as they're healing up from being sick. And other folks are not here today. Brother Keston's home under the weather, I guess, and not feeling well, so keep him in prayer. And a few other folks we're missing as well. Appreciate uh, the new banners that Donna made up for us. I'd say John, but I don't, I don't know how much John had in it. He was, he's the hanger. He hangs them up, amen. And so <laughs> John's got his hang-ups, and uh, he hangs them. And so the banners, new banners are absolutely beautiful. Praise the Lord. New flower arrangements. We're looking good around here. And praise the Lord for it. Uh, we are in 1 John, and we have been going through 1 John, studying this book and seeing what God has for us. And I want us to do something today. We're going to take a little slight detour and uh, try to help us in understanding our Bible and why we love our Bible and the importance of the Word of God. And uh, we're going to look at some things today. We're going to go 100 miles an hour, so yeah, get ready to drop it into fifth gear. Turn your hat around this way it doesn't blow off your head. I have a lot to say and a short time to say it. And this probably should be a three, four-week, five-week message, but we're going to do our best to condense it down. And then we're going to learn how important your Bible is. We're controversial to a lot of people. It's not controversial to me. It hasn't been controversial my entire life. But to some people, what we're going to say will be controversial. But your Bible is important to understand. The Bible says in 1 John chapter number 5 and verse number 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Let's pray. Father, bless the time, bless the hour now. And we ask, dear God, that you'll help us today as we look to the Word of God to see this precious book that has been bestowed upon mankind from you, our God. You have kept it. You have preserved it. You have uh, left it here for us that we may know its truths, to learn about a Savior who came and died on Calvary's cross to pay our sin debt. It tells us of who you are and your great love and mercy. It warns us of our enemy and his subtleties, and how evil he is. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. Let us never lower it. Let us never toss it away. Never let us doubt its wondrous truths. For in them, Lord, there's life, life everlasting. Bless this time and this hour now, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to keep your finger here, bookmark or something, and uh, keep, keep your place there in 1 John because we will be coming back to it. I want you to take your Bible and find, if you will, Psalm chapter number 12. Psalm chapter number 12. And Josh, you want to close that? Somebody's coming in or going. I'm not sure who it is, but... And uh, Psalm chapter number 12. And I want to see what the Bible has to say about some things, and we're going to go through these very rapidly. But I want you, if you don't have these verses marked in your Bible, you should mark your Bible because your Bible is a tool, my friend. It's meant to be studied, learned, and know its truths. 
In Psalm chapter number 12 and verse number 6, he says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Here the psalmist declares that the word of God is pure words. And the word of God has been tried, it's been made pure, and it's also, he says, that God shall preserve them. We believe in what we call the preservation of the word of God, that God has preserved his word. The words that were spoken by David and Daniel and all these great men and women so long ago, God has preserved them so that we have the same words written down for us today. God has preserved this book. I would like you to, and again, that's important for you to remember that verse and those verses there in Psalm. Look, if you will, at the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah today in chapter number 40. We see another. And again, I'm just picking out a few. There are dozens of verses we can look at. But in Isaiah chapter number 40, we see something else here today. In Isaiah chapter number 40 and verse number 8, the Bible says, The grass withereth. The flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Here again, through the prophet Isaiah, the Holy Spirit of God is speaking. And let us know that everything in this world fades away, but the word of God will stand forever. This book that you hold in your hand is not going anywhere. Governments and their documents that, that bind those governments will come and go. But my friend, the word of God will abide and stand forever. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter number 5. Matthew's gospel, first book in your New Testament. Matthew's gospel, chapter number 5, and we read what the Lord has to say, our Savior. Now, again, Jesus is speaking. Again, whether the words in your Bible, you have a red letter edition Bible, that means all the words that Jesus spoke are written in red and and other words are written in black. And it really doesn't matter, my friend, because God has preserved his words. The red words and the black words are all given to us by Almighty God. But if you have a red letter edition Bible, there's nothing wrong with that. It may help you out. It encourages a little bit. He says in verse number 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word made flesh, makes the statement that everything will pass away. We know that someday that the heavens and the earth will pass away. God will destroy them. And God will create new heavens and new earth one day. But Jesus says not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law, from the Bible. Now what is a jot? A jot and a tittle, my friend, is the, the dotting of an I and the crossing of a T. How important is the word of God that God says even the dotting of an I is important to him? You and I, we write sentences and we'll write words out and we'll forget to cross a T. We'll forget to dot an I. We may even leave a letter off. My friend, God has promised to do what? Preserve his word so much so that even the crossing of the T is important to Almighty God. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, says this book is going to be kept and it's going to be here for us. Look, if you will, at Matthew chapter number 24. Matthew chapter number 24. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 24. Jesus again says here in this Olivet Discourse in verse number 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, 
but my words shall not pass away. Now, what words are we referring to? Just the words here in the gospel? No, all of the Bible is the word of God. All of the Bible is given to us by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works according to what Paul tells us in the book of Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what Jesus is saying here and what he's reminding us here that everything will pass away, uh, but the word of God will not pass away. The Word of God's always going to be here. There's never going to be a time when there's not going to be Bible. Men have been trying to destroy the Bible. Governments have outlawed the Bible. And the Bibles have been obliterated from societies. But my friend, societies come and go, but the Word of God will abide and always be here with us. But we go back to our enemy. We remember in Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 1, the Bible warns us some things. We remember what the serpent said to Eve when Eve and her are having the conversation there and uh, they're looking at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and she says, well, the fruit of the, God says we can't eat of this tree or even touch it lest we die, which she was wrong in her statement there because God never said anything about touching it. You can't eat it. And, and then the serpent looked at her and said, yea, hath God said. Are you sure? That's what God said. In other words, he was casting doubt upon the word of God. And we learn from that verse, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of, every tree of the garden. He, the subtlety of the enemy. Satan doesn't always come in and take things away right away, but through subtlety, he begins to undermine the pinnings and moorings and the foundation in which we stand upon. And this, my friend, is where the subtlety comes in. And I want us to go back to 1 John, where we started off here this morning, and I want you to notice some things we're going to uh, go through today to try to be an encouragement to you. Now, if you have a Bible this morning, and, and I encourage you to have your Bible with you, and if you have a Bible, I want you to make sure you got what we call a King James Bible. And you're reading that this morning. And I am going to read something that is basically what is called the American Standard Bible, all right? And here's where we're going to play detective today. I want you to find what's missing. Find what's missing today. You're going to read your Bible. I'm going to read something else. And we're going to see if something doesn't match up. The Bible says in verse number 6, according to the American Standard Bible, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not with water only or words to the effect, but with water and with blood. Verse number 7. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Verse number 8. For there are three who bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, in case you're paying attention, verse number 7 has some serious issues because verse number 7 has been obliterated in the New American Standard Version, the New International Version, the Revised Standard Version, and so many other versions. Where your Bible says, for there are three that bear reckon heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Again, verse number 7 is not there. 
Now, if you have a study Bible, you may have a King James Bible, but you may have a study Bible. Maybe it's a Schofield, maybe it's a Ryrie, maybe it's some other study Bible. And somewhere next to verse number 7, there's a little asterisk, a little note, a little star, something letting you know that the, the, uh, the, the writer of the notes has something he wants to tell you. And that, if you follow that note down, you may find something in your notes section that says something like this. Verse 7 does not appear in the oldest manuscripts. It seems to have been added later by some scribe and is not part of the original text. Now, my friend, that's what they tell you. That somehow verse number 7 does not belong in your Bible. That somewhere along the line, somewhere centuries after it was written by John, some man came along and he added verse number 7 to your Bible, but it should not belong there. Now, where'd they get that from? Well, hang on, we're going to go through a lot of things today and try to help us all. In fact, if you have commentaries and read commentaries on the Bible, you'll find many great Bible scholars, men whom I admire and men whom I read and I, I look to and, and try to get notes from from time to time. And one famous commentary says this about verse number 7. There's nothing wrong with this verse, but we do need to recognize that it's not in the better manuscripts. If we want to be scholarly and accurate and to be able to defend the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Bible, we need to know these things. So, According to one man, if you want to be scholarly and knowledgeable, you need to know that your, that verse does not belong in your Bible. Now, an honest individual will have to ask himself some questions. I've just read some verses to you where the Bible says that God has promised to preserve his word. We read some verses where God said he's going to keep his word. We read some verses in the Bible where the Bible says not one jot or tittle shall pass. And if we read the book of Revelation, at the end of that book, God promises a judgment upon anybody who adds to the word of God or anybody who takes away from the word of God. So if verse number 7 doesn't, is not supposed to be in our Bible, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. We have to ask ourselves, well, what about those Bible verses where God said he was going to keep his word pure? Because that's not pure. Because something has been added in. So is the Bible wrong, or is my Bible wrong, or is God wrong? Or, or should this verse be here, or should this verse not be here? Is my Bible pure? God said it was going to be pure. But apparently it's not pure because there's something in there they're telling me shouldn't be in there. What about the verse in Revelation where God promised judgment upon anybody who adds to the word of God? Will that scribe have the judgment of God upon him? Because sometime later on he threw that verse in there without permission from the Holy Spirit of God. And all scripture is given by inspiration. And holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. These are God's words, not men's words. And so some scribe somewhere in the 3rd or 4th century, 5th century, 6th century, must face the judgment of God because he added to the word of God. If I'm to believe the scholars who write these things and tell me that verse shouldn't be there, then I have to admit that there's a verse in my Bible that shouldn't be in my Bible, which begs the next question, well, how many other verses shouldn't be in my Bible. And how do I know if that verse 
is a good verse or not. Apparently, I have to depend upon some scholar somewhere to educate me and inform me on this because, after all, oh, I'm just a little plebe here and I don't know nothing. I'm just reading my Bible. I need some guy from the big university to help me out. Well, my friend, let's try to understand 1 John chapter number 5 and verse number 7. We read it in our Bible. We read it what it says here. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, that's a good verse. That is what we call a Trinitarian verse. It proves the Trinity of Almighty God. It also proves the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh. And by the way, if you read your Bible, you read John's Gospel, and you read 1 John, it is only John who refers to Jesus Christ as the Word. And that phrase, the Word, appears seven times between John's Gospel and 1 John. If we take verse 7 out of our Bible, then the word, word, the word, appears only six times. But if it appears seven times, then that's the perfect number. It's the number of seven, the complete number, which goes back to John always using the number seven in his gospel. We saw that as we studied all the sevens in John some time ago. So again, we're left with a quandary trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And what do we do with a verse that they tell us is not supposed to be in it because the older manuscripts tell us. And my friend, this is where it comes in. This is what's important for us to understand. This is where the shift takes place in Christianity. Christians are often deceived by the phrase oldest manuscripts. And we are led to believe that somehow because something is older, it means it's better. And that's not true, my friend. It's not true by a long shot, especially in the case of our Bible. Now, what is meant by the phrase older? Now, I want you to understand something here. If I could use two sources. So I'm going to use this book here. I'm going to use this book. Let's say this book here. Let me. There are two sources from which we get scripture. Two places where we get our Bible from. There is known what is called in academia, in the world of all these things, what is called the textus receptus. Textus receptus is a Latin word which simply means the received text. The text that was received and accepted. And so let's say this is the textus receptus. And so men sat down and they took the Greek, which was then later translated into Latin, and they took those old magic. And by the way, uh, and this is a copy of a copy of a copy. Because John's letters no longer exist. We merely have somewhere along the line, there was painstaking efforts made that when a copy was wearing out, you, they're making a new one. And they wanted to get that letter to another church. And, and the scribes very carefully and articulately, uh, which, and that's the job of a scribe, your job is to scribe. You wrote Bible. It's not a job I could do. It's, it's painstaking effort. And if they did a whole entire page and made one mistake, the entire page went into garbage. And they started all over to make sure that they were accurately translating or copying the Word of God. So we have copies of copies of copies of copies. With the Textus Receptus. 
And then there is what we call the critical Greek text. Now, the critical Greek text, there's a long history with this, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that the what we know as our, and by the way, we get our King James Bible, and we call it a King James Bible because it was James of England, the King of England, who after Mary, uh, the wicked queen, finally died and was doing her best to kill Christians and everybody else who loved the Bible. It was the king who, who, who authorized scholars to put the Bible together. Over 40 different men came together, brilliant minds, to take the Bible from uh, Latin and Greek and put it into the English-speaking language so that the English-speaking people could have a Bible to read and understand and know what it said. You didn't need somebody out there telling you what it said. You could have your own copy. And so we call it a King James Bible because, again, it was James the king who, uh, who gave that commission for the scholars to do so because the last group that were on the throne were doing their best to kill everybody who ever tried to get their hands on the Bible. But we call it a King James and people always want to say something bad about King James. We're not going to go into King James himself. He's not important. The Bible just bears his name because he was the one who took the textus receptive, those manuscripts that were accepted because they passed the smell test. And scholars would look at a manuscript that they found and say, you know what, this passes the smell test. It's doctrinally sound. It's, it's wording. Everything else uh, goes along with the flow. It, it's, 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 this is a good copy, a good piece of paper from the Word of God. And by the way, there's, there's, and how they did this, again, it's a very complex, but, and, and I'm taking a very complex issue trying to boil it all down for us, is that, again, there's, there's a paper here, and there's a half a paper here, there's a piece over here of all these, and putting it all together. Later on was discovered some other manuscripts. These manuscripts became known as the critical Greek text. And let's say this is the critical Greek text. We'll put the critical Greek text over here just because it's the only place I got to put it. And that's the critical Greek text. Now, it wasn't until the late 1800s that the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text, which was the foremost Greek text from which the New Testament was derived. Again, the King James Bible is based upon the Textus Receptus. And it was in 1881 that two prominent scholars, Brooke Foss, uh, Westcott, and Fenton Hort, printed the New Testament into Greek out of the Greek, critical Greek text. I want you to remember two names that are very important to understand in church history. The names are Westcott and Hort. All right? Brooke, Westcott, and Fenton Hort. They're important for you to understand. These two men dismissed the Textus Receptive. They dismissed this. They didn't like it. And they went along with, with the critical Greek text. Now, the critical Greek text and the history of, the, of these manuscripts and where they came from, they, were, they are called the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus. And they call that because they were found in a Catholic monastery in the Sinai Peninsula and the other was found in the Vatican itself. In other words, these are Catholic Bibles. The critical Greek text 
again, found in the monastery in the Sinai Peninsula and found in the Vatican itself. And when they were originally found and men began to look at them, they discovered, you know what, we don't, they, there's something wrong with these manuscripts. There's things missing. There's words missing. There's paragraphs missing. There's something wrong with these, 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 these Greek manuscripts. And for the most part, they were rejected for centuries by people. But it wasn't until Westcott and Hort, Hort come along and began to translate those texts into the English language. Eventually, they came up with the, the revised standard version, which was quickly uh, dismissed and hated because of its errors, its omissions, and things that were not in it that we find in the received text. And again, for the record, the vast majority of scholars rejected these manuscripts because of all the errors and omissions. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to look at Jude, the small book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation. Jude, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. What is Jude saying? He said, earnestly contend for the faith. The same thing that I gave you, you're to fight for. You're not to give up. You're not to throw it away. Hold on to the same thing that I gave you. Earnestly contend for that. Why? Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude warns about ungodly men who creep in and what they do to the truth and the word of God. And I would like to tell you this morning that although Jude was referring to men in his day and time, all throughout the church ages there have been certain men who creep in, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And lasciviousness is a matter of all perversions and, and wickedness and how they deny the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. The goal, he says, of these men is to deny who Jesus Christ is. Now, back in Bible days, as we're learning from 1 John, they were fighting Gnosticism. Gnosticism told you, you don't ha Jesus Christ is not God. He's a God. He didn't come to pay for your sins. He just came to give you a better spiritual understanding, to take you to a higher spiritual plateau, and all this other foolishness. And John's gospel is written, let me tell you, Jesus Christ is, and, and, and we're going to declare his deity, and we're telling you who he was, and what he did, and how he came, and how he died for our sins, and how he paid for our sins. They were combating false doctrines. So Jude, when he writes, he's warning them about false men who come in. And my friend, this is a warning throughout the entire church age. Be careful of men who creep in. The Apostle Paul warns, and he talks about how, uh, how men come in who, uh, who, they're ungodly men who deny the power thereof. They, they may look good, but they, they don't pass the smell test, per se, by what they say and do. And can I let you know that men like Westcott and Hort, to use modern vernacular, were very liberal men. They were liberals. 
What do you mean liberals, my friend? Because studying their life and studying their theology, both men denied basic fundamentals. They were, again, university teachers at Cambridge. They denied the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. They denied the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. They denied uh, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. For instance, here are some of Hort's view and what Hort believed. The men who gave you the critical Greek text on which all modern versions come from. The New International Version, the American Standard Version, the, and no matter what version you have, all come from that manuscript. You just get a King James, a New King James, come from the received text. So, Westcott and Hort, who translated from the Greek, using those manuscripts, were found in the Catholic monastery and the Sinai Peninsula and the Vatican. Hort wrote, and he concurred with Charles Darwin's false theory of evolution. He wrote on April 3rd, 1860, but the book which most engaged me is Darwin. Whatever may be thought of it, the book is one is one is proud to be contemporary with. My feeling is strong, and the theory is unanswerable. In other words, Dar uh, Hort believed the theory of evolution. And both men, by the way, denied and mocked the creation account in your Bible. Hort denied a literal Eden and the real fall of man. He wrote, I am inclined to think that no such state as Eden, and I mean the popular notion, ever existed. And that Adam's fall is no degree different from the fall of each of his descendants, as Coleridge justly argues. Hort called the substitutionary death atonement immoral. Writing to Westcott, he said, I entirely agree, correcting one word, with what you say there on the atonement having for many years believed that the absolute union of the Christian, or rather of man, with Christ himself is the, is the spiritual truth with which popular doctrine of substitution is an immoral and material counterfeit. Certainly nothing more could be more unscriptural than the modern limiting of Christ bearing our sins and suffering to his death. But indeed that he is one aspect of an almost universal heresy. Again, denying. They denied, they mocked, they laughed at the idea of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And you cannot be a Christian and deny the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ took our place on Calvary's cross and he bore our sins. For I declare unto you the gospel, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And to deny that is a, is a heresy. And yet men like Westcott and Hort both denied it. In brief form then we find other writers concurred with these men and what they said. Now again, according to Westcott, all religions were related to one another. That Buddhist, Confucianism, and other religions were equal with Christianity. That's a lie. <laughs> There's nothing equal with Jesus Christ. Everything else is a lie. But yet, according to these men, they're the same. 
Westcott and Hort denied a literal heaven. Both men were Darwinist. And Westcott once said that he could not believe that any intelligent person could believe the first uh, three chapters of Genesis and be held to its literal meaning. Both Westcott and Hort believed salvation by infant baptism and taking of the sacraments of the Anglican Church. Hort was also a hater of America. Being Englishmen, I guess they would be at that time, having lost the revolution not too long ago. He viewed America as a menace to civilization. His hope was that the American Civil War would be her destruction. He wrote again that the slaves in America, portraying them as an inferior race and barely human, and their virtues were nothing more than that of a dog. And by the way, that's the view of Darwinism. Darwin also believed that the darker your skin was, the closer you were to apes and, and less evolved. By the way, you notice they're not tearing down Darwin statues anywhere. So again, these men believed in all the things that Darwin taught. They were liberals. They were godless. They were not saved men. And yet these men are the ones who are instrumental in making popular and, and bringing out of the, out of the dust bin the Greek-received text that was rejected by every scholar for centuries because every other scholar would use the Textus Receptus. But a shift happened. And what has happened in the last 100 years is the switching of text. Where this was the study in universities all across the world and in the learned world, if you want to study Greek and know what the Greek has to say and Latin, you go to the text receptus. But somewhere along the line, in the name of intelligentsia, they tossed this away. And in our universities today, anybody who learns Greek and studies Greek goes to the critical Greek text. Now this is where the older manuscript comes into place. Remember, in, you'll see those notes, older manuscripts. Again, older does not mean better. Sometimes it may. I guess with cheese it's supposed to be better. Doesn't work well with hamburgers, amen? I got a hamburger here, cooked it last year. If it's from McDonald's, it still looks the same. All right? If I say I just cooked one fresh right now, and here it is, piping hot, which one do you want? But the, this is older. It's older. Older. Listen, I found old french fries alongside my, that console where you can't get your hand in when your cell phone falls in there, amen? <laughs> I like to find the guys who invent those things and, and you're getting sticks and everything else to get your phone out and you're pulling out french fries and things that, like, what in the world? And that french fry still looks good. Something wrong with that, I'm letting you know. Now, <laughs> now my friend, here's the critical Greek text. Why is it, why is it, why are they older? Why do we have older manuscripts and we don't have older manuscripts of this because for the simple reason the more you use something the more you do what you wear it out and the more you have to make another copy since that was sitting in the dustbin and nobody using it they didn't have to make copies it was just sitting there preserving itself so our copies of this are, are not as old because the copies that came before are all worn out you just 
me more copies. So when they tell you older manuscripts don't have verse number seven, understand for the last, and this has really taken place in the last, since the, the 40s really, when it started all really kicking into place. And if you go back in history, let me say that in the 19th century, Europe was being inundated with what we would call German rationalism, which was modern-day liberalism, where they were denying all the things that we hold true to. And there were men in America and other places around the world saying, no, we don't, we're not holding to German rationalism. It's, it's godless. It's not Bible. Westcott and Hort were, for the most part, believers in German rationalism and held those theories. And they denied all the basic fundamentals that we hold true to our, to our beliefs as Christians. So the critical Greek text is older than the text is receptive because, again, we, the text is receptive was used and is worn out and, and new copies were made. So when men say the older manuscripts, they're always referring to the old manuscripts that, of the Greek critical text, the one that men denied, the one that Westcott and Hort brought into popularity and fame. And again, they, again their first copy, the Revised Standard Version, was, was dismissed. And then other, the, the, uh, the American Standard Version came out, and that was poo-pooed. Then they came out with the new American Standard Version. Again, it, 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 it grabbed some foothold. And it really wasn't until the new international version came out in the 1970s where it really took hold and everybody embraced it because it's, it's easier to read. Because thee and thou is so hard. By the way, people who use, can't use thee and thou can somehow... Know every abbreviation in text world, amen? You know what GM, and all that stuff is. You have no trouble understanding that. And everybody knows there are different pronouns. You know, I can understand he, she, they, them. But when they start going into everything else, then you lose me, amen? Because those are made up. I'm sorry, there's no... And that's just... You just sound like you're being electrocuted. I'm sorry. But, those, but if you can memorize all those, you should have no trouble understanding thee and thou. And by the way, the Bible is, a, is God's word. You really can't understand the Bible unless the author, the Holy Spirit of God, opens it to your spiritual eyes. To understand it. Lord, open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous truths out of thy word. This is a God book. And you need God to help you understand it's wonderful truth and see it. Now, my friend, if you want to be mocked, if you want to be ridiculed, if you want to be attacked, if you want to be told you're ignorant, if you want to be told you're uneducated, if you want to be despised, tell somebody that you only use a King James Bible and then watch them. Oh, God love you. They're just not educated. They don't understand things. No, I understand things perfectly. Now, again, the Christian is faced with the onslaught of all these Bible versions. Which Bible version do I use? You walk into a Christian bookstore anywhere in Barnes and Nobles, there's a wall of Bibles. Which Bible do I use? And by the way, if you want to you, you wanna see something, the Muslim, a Muslim man will tell you, we Muslims only have one Koran, only one Koran. You Christians have so many Bibles, and they all say different things, and they're all different, and, and, and your Bible is just so messed up. But Allah has preserved the Koran for us. And if you're using like one of those preachers who stands up there, today I'd like to read from the RSV, but I like what the NAV says here. And over here, I prefer what the uh, AVC. Well, which one do we use, Pastor? 
I'm confused. By the way, my Bible says that God is not the author of what? Confusion. So why is everybody confused? Something's wrong somewhere. And by the way, if you want to know all the verses and all the, I don't have time for this, all the verses, all the words that, that are omitted from the Greek critical text that you'll find in your King James Bible often have to do with the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, uh, the, the uh, putting down of Satan. By the way, we all know the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you've got another version, it's I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why is Christ removed? And by the way, which way did Paul say it? Which way was it actually written down? Which way was it written down? Was it him or was it Christ? I want to know which word was used. Something's missing. John 3, 16. I can go, there's thousands of changes. And they always have to do with attacking the deity of Christ. That's what they're always going after. Satan doesn't want you believing that. Now again, you want to be mocked? And by the way, if you, they call us, you're one of those King James only. Well, just throw it back at them and say, oh, you're one of those Westcott Hort only types. You only use Westcott and Hort Bible, the Bible that was rejected for centuries. And now in the last 80 to 100 years has it been embraced and it hasn't really helped our nation at all. Now, my friend, 1 John 5-7 in your Bible belongs in your Bible. If you've got a note, remember that note came from a man who within the last 100 years was influenced in his university by the Greek, Greek critical text. That's who influenced him. That's where he got it. And by the way, I've noticed in all these books that I read, I've gone through a lot of commentaries trying to find everybody's notes and what they say about 1 John 5, 7, and they all pretty much parrot each other. Nothing wrong with, it doesn't belong. No, we understand. No, we don't understand. I'm sorry. It belongs in your Bible. It goes with the flow. It, 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 it lets us know who God is. It lets us know the Trinity. And don't ever throw it away. I don't think you need to know that the King James Bible and other versions are not the same. Now let me ask you, there's several questions here. I want to ask you before we finish out. Some rhetorical questions. Does God want us to have his word or not? Yes or no? Well, which one is it? Because they're different. Vastly different. Did God claim to give his word to man? Did God claim to inspire his word? Did God promise to preserve his word? And does God have power to preserve his word? And by the way, they'll tell you in the Greek critical text that we have over 5,500 copies. No. What you have are 5,500 fragments, but you don't have complete 5,500 New Testaments per se. And again, these are all, it's all semantics. Like the politicians use these words, and you think we have older manuscripts. Well, this doesn't mean it's better. Doesn't mean it's better. We got 5,500 copies. Well, no, you got fragments, pieces, and pages, and sections, but you don't have. And they've all been kind of poo pooed and rejected because of the errors that are found in them. 
As Christians, we have to believe that God has preserved his word, that God has kept his word. Or else, what are we going on? And by the way, I'm not saying that because that's, well, it's that or nothing. I'm letting you know that this book has proven itself to be true time after time after time. And it doesn't contradict itself. It tells a story. And, and God has been able to keep and preserve his word for us. And when Satan comes along and tries to, Satan tries to bring confusion to let us know, well, which we, and by the way, I'm not condemning if you've got an NIV, don't sneak out of here hiding it and try to, I'm not going to yell at you, beat you up and, and let you, I'm just letting you know that you, you probably didn't know any better. You walked into a Christian bookstore, I need a Bible. Well, here, what, you want one that's easy to read? Yeah. And here you go. And they hand you one. I mean, you, they got more versions that you can shake a stick at. They got gender neutral Bibles where God is no longer male, God is he slash she, which again goes against the, the language, the Hebrew and the Greek text, which use the idea of male and female femininity in its structure. It opposes language itself. So again, when you read verses somewhere along the line where somebody says that verse does not belong because of older manuscripts, just know what manuscripts they're referring to. They're referring to the Westcott Hort manuscripts for the most part. They're referring to the Catholic manuscripts. They're referring to the rejected manuscripts for centuries until two godless Darwinian reprobates come along and embrace them and introduce them into academia. And now it's almost the accepted thing to accept this as the enlightened and smart, and I'm intelligent, and don't listen to that caveman down there who's still beating on his King James Bible. He just doesn't, he's a good man. He just doesn't know. He's, he's kind of, just God bless, bless his little heart. And by the way, down south, when you're down south and somebody says, bless your heart, it's, it's, it's not a compliment, okay? That's, that's, a, that, that's their way of saying you're an idiot. <laughs> down south, trust me, that's how that works. My friend, you have a preserved inspired Bible. You can believe it. You can trust it. You can rest upon it. Let's stand together for prayer.